On the evening of Thursday, June 4th, 2020, the Naval Academy Museum hosted a webinar. The topic was Navy's Science Fiction and Great Power Competition. We had about 16 presenters and several people who were sending in special messages. The presenters had about 12 minutes to talk about their favorite sci-fi TV show, movie, short story, or book, and explain it within the context of what navies are encountering today. And in some cases, we also use naval history. Now, there was a bit of an audio problem just in one of the talks, and that's because there was a lightning storm going through that person's area. So the people that you're going to hear in this first part of three parts, I'll be doing the introduction. Then it's Commander B.J. Armstrong of the Department of History of the Naval Academy on his subject, the U.S. Navy and Sci-Fi from the Civil War to Midway, followed by a message by Lieutenant Caleb Barron, who's the uh, 54th Naval Academy graduate to become an astronaut. The keynote address is then by Major General Mick Ryan, who's commander of the Australian Defense College, with a topic, Science Fiction and Its Utility for National Security Community. Then I'll give a talk on the how the Federation overcame the, the shipbuilding gap before the defense of Capellius and Star Trek Picard. Colonel Corey Holland, U.S. Air Force, on the Kaiju should have won, force deployment and strategy in the Pacific Rim. There's a short message by Dr. Corey Shockey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies from the American Enterprise Institute. August Cole, co-author of Ghost Fleet and Burn-In, on when a robot has the helm and rounding out the first part of this on a navy is essential for your planet wars between Barriar and Setagandi in Lois McMaster Bujo's Vorkoverse. Enjoy. Good evening welcome to NavyCon 2020 I'm Claude Barabee I'm the director of the US Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Thank you to all our presenters and special guests our partnership with BU9, represented by its founder and current president, Chris Weave, who's my co-host, Chris Weave. And because this is not an all-day event like NavyCon 2017, each presenter is limited to 12 minutes, so we're going to be going about three and a half hours, including uh, the, the special guests. So if you miss any part, go to YouTube, to the Naval Academy Museum's YouTube channel in the next few days. We'll have it up. Ask questions. Our presenters only have 12 minutes, so there won't be time for Q&A uh, so what we'll do is they'll either do it in chat or we will do separate videos that we'll put up on the museum's channel as well. This is a team effort, except for one thing. I wanna state it up front. If there's any issue the audience has, the buck stops with me. There may be technical difficulties, like I've said, said before, but if anything goes wrong, put it on me, not the presenters. Just shoot me an email. I'm gonna have my email at the end. Among tonight's presenters and special appearances are civilian and military, Air Force, Navy, and Army. We left out Coast Guard because we just watched Netflix's Space Force. We have an Australian and Americans. We have Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. Those define us individually, but tonight we're bound by a common enjoyment of science fiction, an interest in science fiction, and what that genre can do in helping us all work together as we have the folks you see on your screen right now in preparing for this NavyCon. We're united tonight to study a common problem and how science fiction can help us understand the navies of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So I'm going to kick it off by putting Commander BJ Armstrong here. Folks, if you would mute and I will shift over. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to NavyCon 2020. I'm Commander B.J. Armstrong, the Associate Chair of the History Department here at the Naval Academy and a contributor at the very first NavyCon in 2017. It's a pleasure to be here with you virtually. And like you, I'm looking forward to a fascinating slate of speakers today. You know, the connection between the United States Navy and science fiction is a historic one. And it goes back further than most people usually think about. Early sci-fi offered interesting storylines, fantastic examinations of the implications of technology, and a broadening scope for understanding naval affairs. While he may not have been thinking about science fiction specifically, the great strategist Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote that naval professionals should keep a selection of literature and good fiction on their reading lists because it, quote, tends to give breadth of thought and loftiness of spirit, unquote. Exactly 150 years ago this week, the final installment of one of the great works of the first generation of science fiction was published. Jules Verne's novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, A World Tour Underwater, was originally serialized in a French magazine and published over the span of about a year, ending in the June issue of 1870. The story, about a sea monster which turned out to be a revolutionary piece of technology, captained by a madman, began with the United States Navy. As the fictional USS Benjamin Franklin set sail to find and destroy the dangerous creature which had been threatening trade and security in the global commons. Verne's classic novel introduced the world to the potential horrors of undersea warfare and the enormous challenge of finding and eliminating submarines. The frigate Franklin is, after all, attacked by the submarine Nautilus, commanded by Captain Nemo, and she is sunk. The fantastical idea of a submarine prowling the world's oceans with near impunity certainly prefigured the public outcries that would come with the German implementation of unrestricted submarine warfare and the sinking of civilian liners like the Lusitania half a century later. And the connection to the U.S. Navy did not end with the plot of the novel alone. 78 years ago this week, the U.S. Navy engaged in what many look back upon as its own Trafalgar, the Battle of Midway. In that tide-turning battle, a single U.S. Navy submarine on its very first war patrol spotted the Japanese at 0755 this morning, the 4th of June. That submarine initiated battle as Japanese screening aircraft and picket ships engaged her with gunfire, and she maneuvered for torpedo positions. The crew of that ship caused their own share of havoc that day, even if we're not really sure how much damage they did because of the continuing problem of American torpedo failures. The name of that submarine was the USS Nautilus. Jules Verne's classic of science fiction looked toward a future where submarines conducted amazing military operations and threatened the safety of the global trading system. But it also suggested that undersea capability would be a great tool of science, as Captain Nemo and his crew also explored the seafloor and built on the oceanographic work of Matthew Fontaine Maury, another U.S. Navy connection named specifically in the book. Now today, our science fiction doesn't tend to look under the sea, but instead up towards the stars. But 
like Verne's novel, it continues to balance the multiple responsibilities of navies in both peace and in war. Surely, the future of spaceships and space fleets is a military future. But it's also an economic future, with its connected need to protect trade, as well as a scientific future, tuned to exploration of the unknown and seeking out new life and new civilizations. These themes, the military, the economic, and the scientific, are distinctly maritime themes, and they're distinctly naval, even when they boldly go where no man has gone before. So please, enjoy this year's NavyCon and the fascinating presentations and presenters you're about to see. I know I will. Their work leveraging today's science fiction to think about naval affairs, using both the mirror of the past and a captain's glass focused on the future, will, as Mahan said, give us a breadth of thought and a loftiness of spirit. Whether we're in sea ships or spaceships, please enjoy the voyage. In addition to the anniversary of Midway, June 4th is the date in 1974 that construction began on the first space shuttle, appropriately named Enterprise, that led to launches from other shuttles from 1981 to 2011. And now an astronaut representing the next generation. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Kayla Barron, and I'm the 54th Naval Academy graduate to become a NASA astronaut. My dad is a huge science fiction fan, so I grew up pulling classics like Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy and Frank Herbert's Dune off his bookshelves. Sometimes I was even able to convince him to let me stay up a little past my bedtime to watch Star Trek or X-Files with him. Science fiction has this incredible power, not only to help us understand the world we live in, but to shape the future we'll inhabit. When I think about my journey from the submarine force to NASA, I'm reminded that sometimes we're only limited by our imaginations. After serving for three years aboard the USS Maine, I returned to the Naval Academy where I met Captain Kay Heyer. She told me about flying aboard the space shuttle to build the International Space Station, and it suddenly occurred to me that the space station is a lot like a submarine in space. That realization rooted itself deep in my psyche and helped me imagine myself becoming an astronaut and ultimately inspired me to apply. The Navy and science fiction are near and dear to my heart, so I know you'll enjoy this awesome event. Have fun. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure and honor to welcome Major General Mick Ryan. Oh, hello there. My name is Mick Ryan and I'm the commander of the Australian Defence College here in Canberra. Thank you to the organisers of NavyCon 2020 for inviting me to speak. I'll be talking today about science fiction and its utility for the national security community and the military profession. Now, there's been recognition over the last couple of decades that this has some utility in how we might think about our national security in the future. And we've seen a profusion of different initiatives in the United States, Europe, and my own country, where we use science fiction to think about the challenges that we'll face in this era of very rapid and complex change. 
So today I'd like to explore this idea with you about how we might use science fiction to think about the future. But before we think about its use in the contemporary era, I think we need to go back because we're not the first ones to have thought of this. And indeed, there are two particular eras that I'd like to quickly explore where military science fiction and military futures have been a very fertile endeavour. These are the pre-World War I era and the Cold War. The lead up to the First World War was a time of tremendous change. The late 1800s and the early 20th century saw a period of massive technological change. Science fiction and military futures, or science romances as they were known, sought to explore the implications of this change. We'd also seen the US Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War and the lessons of these wars and the technological change forced military leaders and others to think about what might come next. But it wasn't until the 1870s that we saw the birth of the true military future novel. And it all started at a place called Dorking. Now the Battle of Dorking, published in England in 1871, foretold of a invasion of the British Isles by an enemy not named but who spoke German. The novel was written by a serving military officer by the name of George Chesney, who was dissatisfied with the state of British defences and their resourcing by government. I'll note that even though he wrote this novel and it was a smash hit, it didn't hurt him in the future and he ended up retiring as a full general and a knight. But this was a sensation. And as I said, the first real fiction blockbuster that looked at the future of war. But we really can't go past a better known novel, which is H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Not only is this one of the best known science fiction stories of all time, it was also one of the first that looked at an alien invasion, a war against the other, against a foe that we didn't understand, unlike wars in Europe or in the US Civil War, where the foe had been well known and spoke a language that we could appreciate. But it also anticipated elements of war that would come in the 20th century. Biological warfare, conflict on an industrial scale, attacks on enemy railroads and logistics, and the concept of total war where we would target populations, particularly through bombing of cities that we would see in the Second World War. So there were hundreds of books written about future war before the start of the First World War, many of them accurately, anticipated some of the challenges of the war to come. But despite this, when World War I did come, no one was able to really intellectually be prepared for the scale, duration and slaughter that would ensure. Now, the second important era in science fiction for us to understand is the Cold War era. And this was really the birth of the modern science fiction era. It was a time of great anxiety, particularly in the 50s, 60s and 70s over nuclear war. And we can identify roughly four different kinds of genres uh, in this Cold War era of science fiction. The first one was invasion films. These are very popular in the 50s and 60s, particularly alien invasions, and they were a metaphor for uh, fears about communist takeovers and reds under the beds. The second genre was war in the far future. And there are many novels in this genre, but in particular, we might recognise two as quite groundbreaking. Starship Troopers by Robert A. Heinlein and The Forever War by Joe Haldeman, both of which feature prominently on military 
and national security reading lists. The third genre was end of the world. This was driven by the threat of nuclear war or resource shortages and featured dozens of books and films, including the great Mad Max series from my home country. And finally, there were books and movies about war in the near future, particularly in the 70s and 80s. And this featured novels such as The Third World War by Sir John Hackett, the influential Day After telly movie in 1983, and Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising in 1986, which foretold of a, a much more different technological era in warfare, which manifested not long after in the 1991 Gulf War. Now, the Cold War era and it's in the pre-World War I era both provided a foundation for much of the thinking about military operations and national security, but it also provided the basis of contemporary sci-fi. Importantly, it provides us with insights into how we might better use sci-fi to inform our future national security policy, military strategy, and the design of our future military. Now that brings us to the contemporary era. There's no doubt we're in an era of quite significant and accelerating change across the areas of geopolitics, technology, demography, and climate. And indeed, the pace of change can be quite bewildering for many of our people and it's almost impossible for an individual to keep up with the range of different changes and the interacting changes that are going on in the environment. But that doesn't remove the obligation for national security professionals and the military profession to think about the future and design itself for the future. Now, there's lots of different ways we can do this. There are futures methodologies and other methods by which we plan for desirable futures for our nations. But one way we can use, and an important tool in our armory, is the use of science fiction to think about the future. Now, science fiction remains very popular. It's, in many respects, a golden age of science fiction TV, but books and films also remain very popular. We're also seeing national security think tanks and military institutions increasingly turning to science fiction to hone their capacity to think differently about the future that we're going to face together. So I think it behoves us to look at why we might use science fiction and how it can be applied in the development of our strategies to face the future ahead. And I think there are five reasons why we might use science fiction in this process. First reason we'd use science fiction is because it helps us to nurture strategic thought in the development of strategic narratives. You can't read science fiction without thinking about the future. It's just, it just happens. Uh, and in thinking about the future, this is an inherently strategic activity. This allows us then to anticipate challenges and provide us with initial diagnoses which, upon which we can then build strategies. The second reason is that it helps us nurture diverse views across and within institutions. As I said at the start, we are in an increasingly complex technological time and this demands diverse views to solutions. Complexity demands diverse options and diverse views and science fiction can help us achieve this. The third reason is it should provide us with a safe framework for anticipating disaster and where strategic surprise might occur. 
Roberta Wolsetter, in a classic book that examined, examined Pearl Harbor, noted that in conditions of great uncertainty, people tend to predict that events they want to happen will eventually happen. If we roll forward in the 9-11 era, the 9-11 Commission noted that one of the key findings was that there had been a failure of imagination. Science fiction allows us to use our imagination in a safe way to try and anticipate and prevent future disasters. Fourth reason is that science fiction reinforces the enduring nature of human conflict. Humans are inherently competitive. War-like disease is part of human existence on this planet. Science fiction helps us to remember that. It's not going away anytime soon. It allows us an enhanced understanding of this reality so that we don't forget the need to invest in our security and ensure we maintain the appropriate deterrence against those who threaten liberty and democracy. And finally, science fiction nurtures hope for the future. I'm an optimist. Science fiction should nurture that optimism in all of us. Everything we do in the military and in the national security sphere is about creating a better peace. Sci-fi portrays a future where humans are still around, and that's a good thing. And we should be optimistic about the future. Why else would we serve our nations but to make them better for our people? I'd like to conclude with a short quote by Basil Liddell Hart, who wrote a book just at the end of the Second World War, looking at the future of war. And at the end of the book, he notes that our planning machinery has been much improved. Its weakness still lies in too routine approach to the problem on conventional lines. Under a pressure war, much greater use has been made of scientists than ever before. But adequate application of the data requires a mind that is both scientific and military, while for thinking ahead, imagination is also needed. That concludes my presentation on why science fiction has utility for national security and the military profession. Thank you so much once again to the organisers of NavyCon 2020 for inviting me to speak. Thinking about the future is inherent in the responsibilities of the profession of arms and the broader national security community. And if the application of science fiction can help broaden and also deepen our expertise in doing that, that's a really good thing. Thank you and enjoy the rest of NavyCon 2020. Thank you very much, General Ryan. All right, next, I'll be giving the next talk here. And it's on the Federation's response to the incident at Capellius in Star Trek Picard. And there's going to be some spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, in science fiction, we are accustomed to storylines. This was partially the case with Star Wars before they turned all to Ewoks and Jar Jar Binks, which I'm sure Major Harper will explain in his talk. In the British series, Blake Seven, the antiheroes escape and use the Liberator and later the Scorpio to fight an evil Federation. General Ryan already showed us the Rocinante in the current Expanse series, which will be discussed later in the evening as well. 
And our friends at the Canadian Embassy, especially Captain Monaghan, might be fans of their country's series, Dark Matter, which focused on the crew of the Raza. And yes, we all want Firefly back. In Star Trek Picard, the team is aboard the private ship La Sarina in the hope of trying to protect a colony of synthetic humans on the planet Capellius from being eradicated by Romulans who view this new race, as it were, as a threat to Romulan existence. A fleet of more than 200 Romulan warbirds arrives at Capellius. Picard and Lysirena do use electronic warfare to trick the Romulan sensors to, as Picard says, multiply the sensor images and then find some way to disperse them like an ancient warplane scattering bits of mirror. But that tactic is only temporarily successful. Now this massive fleet should have presented a problem for the Federation. Keep in mind that these events take place in the year 2399. The Federation's problem is its losses in the three previous decades. Between the Borg incidents and more significantly during the Dominion War, hundreds, maybe more, uh, of ships are lost. We can assume that Starfleet is not infinite. Despite it supposedly running on a non-monetary economy, ship construction takes time, resources, and trained personnel. Another assumption we can make based on uh, history, sorry, I'm gonna go back to a, back one slide on that, apologize folks. Construction dramatically decreases after wars as the country turns its attention to domestic issues and the lack of an, internet, an immediate international threat. On top of that, within a decade of the war's conclusion, the Federation's primary shipyard is destroyed on Mars, as recounted in Star Trek Picard. And thanks for, to Ryan Riddle out there for pointing out a few of the other shipyards. In 2390, the first inquiry-class starship is launched, and we'll get to that in a minute. Nine years later, the events of Picard with the Romulans bearing down on Capellius with only Picard and a few tricks are left to hold the fleet. So here's the question. How did the Federation recover from that ship deficit due to the Dominion War and destruction of its primary shipyard to stop the Romulans at Capellius? In line with this event, how does a great power recover from a shipbuilding deficit to deter another great power if the situation warrants it? Those are not official numbers, by the way. These are from a variety of sources. So here's my take. Lesson number one, distribute your shipbuilding capability. Build an industrial base. The Utopia Planitia shipyard on Mars was simply too big to fail or too big to be destroyed in one fell swoop by the synthetics and the Romulans. In World War II, 2,700 Liberty cargo ships were built at 18 different shipyards across the country, thus reducing vulnerability of any one and increasing the ability to produce ships quickly. Lesson number two, have a common ship architecture. This is the Inquiry-class starship composing the fleet which will go to Capellius. It's significant that in this battle there's only one class, unlike the other Starfleet battles which we see here, which have multiple classes of ships. So what's the advantage? As my old shipmate and friend Matt Booker suggests, this could simply be a strategic reaction force pre-staged set to deal with ad hoc crises. A common ship architecture encourages a stable industrial base, reduces the cost per unit since there are economies of scale even in the Star Trek universe, and reduces the time to build them based on gained expertise. 
The only significant difference being that I've been able to tell from this are the warp cell configurations, but that's minor issue. Two examples in our history might be the World War II era Gleaves and Fletcher class destroyers, though we can assume from Captain Riker of the Inquiry fleet that those ships were more in line with World War II cruisers. They were tough, they were fast, they were powerful uh, in capability, especially since this Inquiry class cruiser is smaller than the Galaxy or the Sovereign classes. Another example could be the Baltimore class cruiser during World War II whose hull design and propulsion would also be used for subsequent Saipan class command ship and Oregon class missile cruisers. Perhaps today we could consider the F-100 or the European multi-purpose frigate to have that common ship architecture available among several countries as well. So clearly there, in the future there's a engineering officer named Mark Van Droff the 17th who resolves all these acquisition reforms. Lesson number three, deterrence requires sufficient force. Because of that distributed shipyard system and a common ship architecture, the Federation could within a few years build a sufficient fleet to meet the Romulans at Capellius in this Mahanian battle. Having only 10, 15, or 100 ships would not have turned the tide and it would have likely resulted in a massive loss to the Federation initially and a wider scale war. Put in terms of the anniversary today, as Commander Armstrong mentioned, how might Midway have turned out? with only with one or two less US aircraft carriers available. Another point that we should note is when facing the Romulans, they usually back down when confronted, confronted and certainly open to debate on that one. Uh, two examples are from Star Trek Next Generation when Commander Tomalak has two, T, two D Derridex class warbirds about to destroy the Enterprise D. But they back down when the Enterprise D is backed up by three Klingon birds of prey and they decloak. The same is true when Admiral Sela's force supplying the Klingon Civil War is uncovered. Lesson four, build alliances. We forget that the Federation may have been Earth-centric, at least in the television uh, series, but it was a system that required alliances and governance among planets. In fact, in Star Trek Enterprise, it begins as a loose-knit alliance toward the end of the series. And there are sometimes when we join the Klingons or the Romulans during the Dominion War. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, like Babylon 5, was certainly brain candy for the international relations realists. Even in the 21st century, we need to build partnerships and alliances. Lesson five, the human factor. That Mahanian force is there to back up diplomacy in the hope that sanity will prevail, which is what happens at Capellius. The fleet prepares for battle with the Romulans, giving Picard more time to persuade the synthetics to stand down. They do, and eventually the Rom Romulans are pushed back, thus precluding a wider conflict. So with all the technology, with all the ships, with all the weapons, and with all the artificial intelligence that is so attracted to some, it came down to the best of human traits. It came down to Picard, communication, the ability to rise past mistake, above past mistakes, understanding one another, trust, hope, belief, forgiveness, the ability to choose what is right, to de-escalate crises. As Picard says at the end, that's why we're here, to save each other. And that's what science fiction teaches us, whether in 2399 or 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I'm going to now turn it over to Colonel Holland. Corey? All right. Well, thank you uh, to everyone for being here. Thanks to uh, Claude and the U.S. Naval Academy, or excuse me, the uh, U.S. Navy uh, for setting this up. Uh, I am obligated to say that the opinions I'm about to present are mine and do not represent the uh, position of the U.S. Air Force, the DOD, or the United States government. Too often, I think military professionals get enamored with tactics and forget or misprioritize their real purpose, employing violence to attain a political goal. Science fiction actually doesn't do anything to counter this tendency because dramatic scenes of decisive battles followed immediately by peace are great entertainment, but they also skip over the difficult and the messy part in the middle. It reminds me a little bit of South Park and the underpants gnomes. The gnomes are replaced with the military and political leaders, but the middle, that eh question, is what I want to talk about, because I believe that the middle is where strategy lives. Also, we spend a lot of time studying the winners uh, to unlock the secrets of their success, but significantly less time looking at the losers. But I think we can gain equal, if not more valuable, insights with, through an examination of the losing side. This approach can be especially valuable with respect to science fiction, because the losing side often has a massive tactical or operational advantage. However, for the sake of the story, they often squander opportunities or lack a strategy to translate their victory into success. Look, if an entire war can be lost because of a cavalry charge, <clears throat> Star Wars, <clears throat> Lord of the Rings, you, your plan probably wasn't very sound in the first place. So let's test this. We're going to take a look at the Kaiju War from Pacific Rim and, yes, sorry to the hardcore fans, Pacific Rim Uprising as well. In 2013, the first kaiju came to Earth through an interdimensional portal beneath the Pacific Ocean to the south and east of Hong Kong. Trespasser was his name, and he attacked San Francisco and made it 35 miles inland in six days before and destroying much of Oakland and Sacramento in the process. Three tactical nuclear weapons employed by British and American forces finally brought it down. Six months later, there was another kaiju, codenamed Hunden, who attacked Manila. Then another attack four months later on Cabo. Earth-based forces resorted to nuclear weapons in each case. Well, after four or five extinction-level threats, the world isn't just going to stand for it. So the Pan-Pacific Defense League was formed, and the Jaeger program was born. The war between the Jaegers and the Kaiju ranged on for another 10 years. Kaiju attacks became more frequent, and each Kaiju was a larger and more dangerous threat. As the U.S. representative to the U.N. L. Taylor said in 2024, Kaiju are learning our defenses. They're adapting, evolving. Those sneaky bastards, the enemy's going to do that. Because of the costs and the losses suffered by the Jaeger program, the U.N. shifted funding to an even more expensive and massive technical solution, the wall of life. The Kaiju, ignoring the Napoleonic dictate of not interrupting your enemy while he's making a mistake, attacked and overcame the wall around Sydney, taking about an hour to do it. This breach only, uh, the breach itself only supported one kaiju at a time because of its unstable nature. As seen here in the middle there, it's sort of like a throat. It was essentially a narrow passageway between the two universes. As it reset after each transfer onto the earth, it became more stable and was able to reset more quickly. 
The breach was impervious to assault from humans because it would read the DNA of the kaiju and only allow them to traverse the breach. It was essentially a one-way door. Additionally, the kaiju have a hive mind and all information available to one became available to all. Humans were eventually able to exploit this vulnerability by creating a neural link with the kaiju. This was called drifting, not to be confused with the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift Maneuver. Hat tip to the comedy team, I mean, Pacific Defense League scientists, Drs. Newt Geyser and Herman Gottlieb, who discovered the secret of passing into the antiverse. The antiverse was the dimension on the other side of the breach and inexplicably where the Eye of Sauron went after its destruction in Middle-earth. Turns out the Kaiju were just weapons sent by a race of beings known as the Precursors. The goal was in the elimination of animal life on Earth in order to prepare it for the Precursors to move in. After this drift, Dr. Geyser relays the phased plan of the Precursors. He says, quote, the first wave, that was just the hounds. Categories one through four, it was nothing. Their purpose was to aim for the populated areas and take out the vermin. The second wave, that is the exterminators, and they will finish the job. And then the new tenants will take possession. So the middle is fairly obvious here. Wipe out the humans, no resistance, they're able to take over. Now eventually, two extremely large kaiju, classified as category four, came through the breach at the same time. Only days later, a triple event with two category fours and a category five occurred. But nuclear weapons can solve problems, and Jaeger's Gypsy Danger and Striker Eureka managed to close the breach and, quote, cancel the apocalypse, end quote. Or at least delay it until movie executives decided the market could support a sequel. Then the precursors use a neural link between the kaiju and Dr. Geyser to infiltrate the Earth, create multiple breaches, and send three kaijus, two Cat 4s and a Cat 5 again. The objective of this plan was to converge on Tokyo, fall into the Mount Fuji volcano, ignite the Pacific Rim of Fire, and create an extinction-level catastrophe. Oh, and they merge, Voltron-style, to create a mega kaiju with drones, because sequels. Okay, so in great power competition, I think it's important to protect and utilize the advantages that you have while mitigating against your vulnerabilities, and that's what this movie is going to demonstrate for us. So what advantages did the precursors have? Well, first, surprise. The Earth didn't know there were alternate dimensions, much less that they could come through the ocean. They were looking for aliens from the wrong direction. Second, the precursors could develop and deploy kaiju without a fear of attack. If this reminds you of the US during World War II, you're right, but you need to eliminate the Battle of the North Atlantic to have an accurate analogy. They had unfettered access without vulnerability. Third, the kaiju hive mind meant instantaneous sharing of enemy battle, battle tactics and capabilities. Fourth, there was a baseline structure for the kaiju that could be upgraded with developing capabilities like an acid attack and electromagnetic pulse blasts, and the timeline for this was incredibly fast. Fifth, in the second war, they created several breaches that, while vulnerable, nevertheless enabled multiple avenues of attack. Sixth, convergence and interoperability. Combine a carrier, 12 tanks, and a B-52 all at the same time. Now, while this technologically might be beyond our reach, the idea of converging capabilities as a single point to create a virtual mass is very appealing, and the precursors could do it. And perhaps the biggest advantage that the precursors had was that they were fighting humans, 
which we have notoriously short attention spans. We were also arrogant enough to believe that something we built, i.e. the wall, could stop creatures who had already come from a different dimension. So with all of these advantages, why did they lose? Well, when analyzing where things went wrong, the real beginning of the disaster is almost always around the first moment that you as a leader say, well, shit, right around there. So where did the precursors first say that? A number of errors present themselves that very likely mirror current real world problems that we are having in developing strategy and thinking about our force deployment. The first is a reliance on single tech solutions and or decisive battle. Bigger and more exquisite technological solutions are very seductive. They offer a panacea to the problems of enforcing your will on another. However, Clausewitz is still right. Defense is the stronger form of warfare and the loser decides when the war is over because they're the ones who have to decide to stop fighting and accept this new reality. A single technology and or a single battle is very unlikely to achieve that goal, especially when the goal is the complete eradication of the enemy. Also, failure to protect the lines of communication, specifically the sea lines of communication. They assumed, the precursors, that the breach was a one-way door into the AOR. There were no defenses in the homeland, no alternate industrial sites, no backup plan in case that single assumption proved faulty. But then, in case in what can only be classified as a Millennium Falcon-sized hole in their plan, the precursors waited until near the end to deploy any kind of protective force around that line of communication. Third, you know, uh, Curtis LeMay wasn't allowed to fly combat after he learned about the Manhattan Project. Maybe, just maybe, this network warfare uh, that we're all so keen on getting into actually presents multiple points of entry for an adversary, as the precursors learned. And finally, the creation of the Mega Kaiju was a last-ditch effort to create a system-level catastrophe. Alighting the Pacific Ring of Fire was a method of achieving human extinction. However, it was a, what they call a single roll of the iron dice, a reliance on decisive battle. I'd argue that their tactics and strategy actually began to diverge right around their second uh, attack. Trespasser was sent to test the capabilities of the Earth to resist and create some havoc. Cool, fine. But Hundun's, the second Kaiju's, attack on Manila doesn't make any sense. In fact, the entirety of the plan doesn't make a lot of sense. If the goal is to eliminate the vermin and you discover in the first attack that the vermin can fight back, you gotta reevaluate. Instead, Hundun went ahead and attacked Manila. And then after that, KSF goes after Cabo. Now it's gone completely off the rails. Because force deployment should always align with the strategic goal. As B.H. Little Hart said, quote, the longest way around is often the shortest way home, end quote. In other words, if the goal is the ultimate destruction of the enemy, not every move should be to throw your strength against theirs. Instead, those with the massive advantages should look to capitalize on and protect those advantages. The single most important advantage the precursors had was the one-way door, the breach itself. They should have guarded that, capitalized on their surprise, massed their forces, and aligned their actions with the desired outcome. Now on the surface, the precursors and the kaiju don't have a lot to teach us. They got unlucky because of human heroes. But if we see strategy as a theory about what actions will create an advantageous succession of hostilities, then there are a number of lessons to learn. The precursors were essentially the underpants gnomes. But it was send the kaiju to make a mess, 
eh, something, 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 and all humans wind up dead. The question and the challenge is to look at current military force deployment and overall strategy and ask, what's that part in the middle? Because my friends, right now, we in the United States have most of the advantages. And if we don't figure out how to translate those advantages into a desired political relationship with the rest of the world, we could eventually suffer the fate of the precursors, cut off from our goals and unable to act in the world we want to. Thank you for your time and I'll turn it back over to Claude. Thanks, Corey. And it's really my pleasure to uh, show this pre-recorded message from Dr. Corey Shockey with the American Enterprise Institute. The hardest thing for policymakers to do is to relax known constraints on a problem. And that's what science fiction does for us. Because if the United States had always been the dominant technological power militarily in people's professional lifetimes, there's a tendency to carry that bias forward in your thinking. Or if Chinese GDP growth has been eight, nine percent for 10 years, there's a tendency to straight line that outwards. What science fiction does for us as policymakers is help us relax known constraints on the problem, to use our imaginations more fulsomely, more fulgently, to think about what could be different and how can we come up with creative ways to manage those differences? That's what science fiction does for us, that policymakers urgently need when handling problems of the magnitude and discontinuousness of great power competition. And August Cole, over to you. We got August on. Hello, everybody. I'm uh, really happy to be able to talk to my fellow travelers in the science fiction community. It is uh, a great pleasure to be talking to an actual con. This is my first one, if you can believe it. So uh, I have a lot of enthusiasm and, uh, and, and excitement about uh, being able to talk to you for this 12-minute uh, block here. I'm going to uh, kind of talk to you about the way that I've been thinking about how we use fiction in the development of ideas that are relevant for professional uh, military education, for actual development of strategy and technology. One of the, one of the hardest things actually is to, to give it a name. What is it that we are trying to do? And, and I've uh, been thinking about it in the context of something called FICIN, which is, of course, derived from this uh, aspect of the intelligence community's labeling of things that they hear, see, et cetera, like electronic intelligence, human intelligence. Um, and by, by giving you know, a, a somewhat silly name to the science fiction though that we all like to consume and, and sometimes write, it allows us though to make it seem in effect even more official, uh, to create that sort of uh, acceptance, which is thankfully growing and growing with, with each day. One of the reasons I think why it is so important right now that we do have access to stories, films, even video games is because the speed of change in the world is such that the conventional approaches to trying to make sense of everything are, are really incredibly uh, out, of, out of date or out of step, even if they are more contemporary in, in those approaches. You know, this era of, of data, for example, uh, is almost incomprehensible given, especially for a history major like me, you know, the, the idea that Clive Humby 
mathematician in 2006 said that uh, data is the new oil has an altogether different context when you think about the universe of digital information that uh, is being produced. The World Economic Forum had expected in 2020, we'd have like 44 zettabytes of, of, uh, of, of data. And, and if we actually are at that level right now, that's like 40 times more bytes than there are stars in the universe as we see it. And, and to me, it fits into this construct of data is a new ammunition that warfare is changing, whether it's at sea, whether it's in cyberspace, whether it's on land, whether it's in the kind of cognitive domain, that nothing will happen without that sort of uh, appreciation for the vastness of the, of the challenge and how, and how we really have to struggle to, to get our heads around it. Fortunately, fiction is, is exceptionally, I think, uh, adept at that because it allows us to focus on the ever important human element. Often we are confronted with uh, conceptions of what, whether it's warfare, whether it's society look like, that don't fully uh, honor or really reflect, I think, the actualities of what it's like to live in those worlds. And so from, from my perspective, being able to create uh, synthetic environments that reflect the senses that we all have, but also the sorts of research and analytical uh, approaches that people who write white papers or uh, conventional reports take. Uh, this concept of useful fiction, you know, something that we've explored with Ghost Sleep, now Burn In, uh, and other, other work that I've done, I think is, is really under, underscored uh, in its value because of the sort of transparency that you actually end up taking with the reader when you do something like, let's say, add footnotes, offering up the sort of research that you discover on your journey to try to make sense of what's ahead. And, and that humility, I think, is really important because we are all experiencing our own futures in a way. And that's, of course, increasingly going to accelerate as augmented reality comes online, perhaps in the next uh, two to three years. You know, Apple in the last month has, has kind of uh, drawn the curtain back on some of its latest uh, products that it's, that it's seeking to explore. You know, William Gibson, the, the science fiction writer, one of the people who's probably most influential for me, had said uh, almost 20 years ago that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And I think about that quote often because it is a really, I think, apt uh, encapsulation of the challenge that we have in being able to see not only our present, but what's ahead from different perspectives that, that are really unlike anything uh, that we might naturally gravitate towards. And in fact, those are the voices and, and points of view that can be the most useful because that's where surprise ultimately comes from for, for better or for worse. And as I've spent like the last eight years, more or less thinking about the future of conflict uh, with ghost sleep, you know, trying to imagine how a uh, over-reliance uh, on technology could hinder the US in its uh, kind of strategic contest with China how uh, underappreciating, for example, the Chinese government's uh, commitment to developing game-changing technologies could result in, in a real strategic surprise. And then now uh, with, with Burnin, looking at the blind spots that we're developing around the absolutely uh, powerful wave that's coming right at us in terms of AI and everyday robotics for transforming our economy, our society, our political system. And that, of course, has huge implications for our, our, our military and those of our, of our allies as well. You know, when, when you start to really kind of embrace this change and see it as something that is certain to come, even if we already are, are seeing, uh, I think, a fairly decent preview of it in the coronavirus context, you know, the, the radical shift to working from home in a matter of days and weeks for large swaths of the society, including students, uh, is, is extraordinary. You know, telemedicine is another domain where the uh, leap from a conventional approach to healthcare, just something altogether out of the realm of science fiction, uh, through telemedicine and other forms of uh, synthetic, uh, you know, uh, healthcare, 
or it's like the kind of acceleration you couldn't have predicted with any with any other of the conventional foresight metrics. And so this this idea that we are going to be able to predict any one of the futures that are ahead for us, you know, when we are going to be at that point when we are sending, for example, sailors out to sea aboard a ship that is in fact uh, helmed or, or guided by an autonomous system and not actually a, a human captain uh, or officer. It, that to me is really the realm, of course, of, of, of somewhat of a fantastical view of, of say, naval combat, uh, naval operations, but it is incumbent on us to start to do that work now to anticipate what that might actually be like. So we're ready to fully capture, I think, the, both the human dimension of it in terms of the challenges, but also the opportunities. You know, where can we actually make these futures work for us? You know, if you think about uh, the Jack Aubrey character from Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander, who was an exceptional uh, sailor, exceptional warrior, and it was absolute shambles uh, with his life ashore. I think that that dichotomy is really important to think about, that for as much as the Navy is going to be focused on the maritime mission, the undersea, the surface mission and the undersea mission, the air missions, that understanding what's going on in American society and, and, and other uh, countries around the world is going to be critical because we are entering, and I think we're getting, again, this, this glimpse of it right now, even in the last uh, few, few, few days and, and week, of uh, incredible foment and turmoil that is going to be uh, essentially accelerating because of the, the coronavirus pandemic, bringing this forward sooner. But many of the larger uh, trends around automation and workforce transformation that are not adequately backstopped by a kind of civil society uh, or, or a social contract that, that can account for an America where 40% of its population is working uh, and, and what and they want to. And so this, this idea of being able to balance both the strategic vision for a fighting force that is, of course, rooted in a society that is going to see major swings in terms uh, of, of what the federal government is going to be asked to pay for, I think is incumbent on some of the, the really, uh, I think, baseline goals of, say, a 355-ship Navy by 2034, um, you know, the idea that, that that can remain intact as we imagine it today is, I think, uh, a far, far greater stretch than most people appreciate. And when I, when I think about the, the, the concept, too, of some of these metrics, which are in many ways very backward looking in the conception of naval operations, you know, this 355 ship number, why not rather than, than try to fight for every single hull, uh, add a whole zero to it? Uh, so that you're talking about thousands of vessels that don't look or, or operate like those of the 20th century. And to me, this sort of a, of a cultural break with past and tradition is exceptionally important. But it's also one of the biggest challenges that you might face uh, in, in kind of the larger defense uh, complex in the U.S. for the political and the, and the commercial reasons that, that go with that. But that's the sort of radical thinking, I believe, that is going to be really important to kind of coming up with a, a fighting force that can fulfill a very sci-fi vision of, of, of operational concepts that will feel familiar at times, but will also feel like we are uh, in the realm of, of something that is wholly uncomfortable and, un and unfamiliar. And that, in fact, I think is, is, is the point. The, you know, the, the realistic approach in the way that we look at these futures is also critical. If I think about the ways that I've tried to explore this in some of the short stories I've written, uh, even in bigger projects like Ghost Fleet, it's really trying to unpack what are our most closely held assumptions and, and how can I contest those? And can I do that authentically in the way that uh, an adversary would? Because it feels to me like the more credibility we can give to adversaries, especially in the great power context, uh, the better a chance we have at actually weathering the sorts of tactics and strategies that they're likely to, to throw at our, 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 our country uh, writ large. 
this this idea of, for example, the uh, balance between the manpower requirements of a modern fighting ship in the, in the year 2020 and the amount that the Navy and Congress want to spend on it, you know, clearly is, is out of whack. Uh, you know, the GAO had a really interesting report, and I thought they encapsulated it really well. This is a, like a 2017 report, but they said, you know, the Navy's process to determine manpower requirements, the number and skill mix of sailors needed for its shifts, does not fully account for all, all ship workload. It's a very simple sentence, but it is so critical in understanding how we're going to develop a relationship at sea with machines. You know, what are the jobs that we, we want to retain for humans? And what are those that we want to offer to software or, or, or robotics themselves? And, and this uh, slow you know, transition to this, uh, this hybrid type maritime force can't be done with a half measure. It is the sort of approach that it, I think is equivalent to understanding the era of platform dominance is of course over, right? Software driven capability is going to be the best baseline for understanding an order of battle, if you will, in the future, not, not counting hulls or counting airframes. And that's a really difficult aspect too to, to, to get your head around, but something that sci-fi is so well suited for. And, and when you, you know, think about some of the lessons learned in the, in the fictional realm that we've seen, you know, taking a very utilitarian approach to technology, of course, helps, I think, characters really be able to see the world as it is, not as everybody else wants it to be. And, and though I you know, can sound somewhat dystopian in saying all of this, you know, I do believe that being uh, aware that everybody's you know, got a different version of what utopia is for, for, for one, but secondly, that one person's utopia is certainly another's dystopia. And, and yet I also feel it's uh, incumbent on us for those who really want to imagine these futures that we don't create a sort of learned helplessness in thinking about what's ahead. You know, this, this notion of agency is especially important when you think about the human machine and human software relationship, because we are raising our children in an app-driven world where they do not have a lot of uh, direction and control over, over how they shape and model uh, what, their, what their, their own algorithms and kind of their, their human self-determination look like. And yet at the same time, I want to be able to create something that if it's read allows people to say, you know, that's a future I want to avoid, or there's an element there that I can see already present and coming true, and I need to do something about it. You know, that aspect of it uh, is, I think, critical in thinking about how we write. You know, the, the other, and I'll kind of think wrap up on this note, is that encouraging people to spend more time writing thick and writing fiction, it is incredibly worthwhile, even if it is the sort of uh, work that doesn't necessarily go anywhere else but your own hard, hard, hard drive. No uh, what, you're, what you're doing is you're allowing your creative forces to be applied to very practical problems that we all ruminate on day in and day out. And I think that is the sort of uh, work that creates patterns of creativity that can be applied well beyond the page. And there's another aspect too. So for the very tribal community that we're in, uh, in this uh, very innovative, I think, forward-looking uh, group of people concerned about, about national security you know, in the coming decades, fiction is a great uh, form of almost connective tissue. It's a common language. The fact that we can, we can hear some of the talks tonight and know exactly what everyone is talking about speaks, I think, to that cultural connection that is critical. And also not only for, for us here, but also as we reach out to more people who are trying to bring into that fold, because good ideas, of course, uh, can come from anywhere uh, around the world these days from any communities. And we really do need to be mindful of that for our own uh, desire to be at the forefront, but also uh, mindful of how our adversaries are sourcing, uh, whether it's software or whether it's, uh, it's engineers. So I'll wrap up on that note, but thank you again for the chance to, to speak to you all from, from, uh, from, from the bottom of my heart. This is a real honor, and I look forward to the rest of the talks this evening. August, thanks a lot. It's good seeing you again.
And for our audience, if you haven't seen on chat, just to let you know, there's a weather front coming through DC. We lost one of our folks who was heading into their office to do their presentation later. But if we lose a couple of, of our presenters, what we're gonna do is just move forward with the next folks because we are distributed. So there's an advantage to a uh, distributed network. Uh, second, there was a question on bio, BIOS. Uh, if you go to NavyCon 2020 to the U.S. Naval Academy Museum's website, you'll see BIOS on all the speakers. And our next speaker is Jennifer Marlin. Jennifer, you up? I am up, but I am brought to you by Lantern Light and battery backup. So let's see how this goes. Nope. We see your screen. Good. Do you see my slides? We do. Fantastic. It's all yours. Okay. Why? Okay. Um, so a Navy is essential for your planet. My required uh, disclaimer saying that these are my views and not the departments of the Navy or its components, but why would it be? Because I'm not talking about the US Navy's history, I'm talking about the fictitious history of the wars between the Bahrainian and Setagandan empires that provide the framework for the majority of the books of Lois and Master Bajold's Vogoverse. This award-winning series currently has 17 books and five short stories published between 1986 and 2018. Um, so some background. The planet Barrier was colonized by 50,000 colonists from a future Earth around 300 years before the first Setagandan War. Soon after the colonists arrived, the wormhole pathway that expedited their travel collapsed, leaving the colonists to themselves and cut off from the galaxy. This lost planet was rediscovered through a wormhole jump, a different wormhole jump pathway through Kamarian space. Once again, in communication with the galaxy, Barrier was um, just starting to get used to this new technology. They were fielding ambassadors to the major planets. And then the Komarians decided they wanted to invade. Timeline of the conflicts. So hopefully you all can see my little cursor. Here is a wormhole nexus and here is Barriar. The Setagandan Empire as I understand it, is in orange, and I should say that any mistakes in this are entirely mine and not represented by either the will of the author or uh, my source material in, find, in creating this Nexus map. So the Setagandan Empire decides they want Bariar. They pay off uh, Komar to allow safe passage through their space and occupy Bariar for about 20 years. The Bahrainians were not excited about becoming part of the Setagandan Empire and violently resisted. After great losses on both sides, Setaganda decided that Bariar was not worth the effort and retreat. Once again independent, Bariar started rebuilding and uh, this included the development of a unified military with a strong space navy that would provide assurance that their planet would never be invaded again. 50-ish years after the end of the first Setagandan War, Bariar launched their mighty navy to take control of Komar, the place that allowed them to be invaded in the first place, to ensure that their homeworld would not be invaded again. Leading this invasion was Bariar's top strategist, who publicized that after Komar was part of 
the Bahrainian Empire, the tariffs for transiting through their nexus points would be reduced from 25 to 15%. As predicted, the galaxy recognized Komar as part of the Bahrainian Empire and enjoyed pocketing the tariff reduction. Winning the hearts and minds of the people of Komar is a subject for a different talk. In addition to moving their defensive perimeter against the Setagandan expansion, Komar provided bar We're going to wait just about 10 seconds to see if that uh, power is just a glitch on Jennifer's side. All right, uh, our apologies. Yeah, like I said, we've got a weather front coming through DC area and a few presenters are being affected. So while that happens, we're gonna shift over to the next pre-recorded message. So the question is, why is it legitimate to study science fiction? For sailors, this is an easy question to answer. Regardless of their academic background, sailors exist in a world defined and surrounded by technology. It is only natural that someone with a love of the sea and the stories she creates would be attracted to science fiction. Good fiction provides an escape from reality, and science fiction has the ability for the audience to escape the limitations of today's speed, time, distance, and landscapes. It takes the plausible and makes it real the fanciful normal. Though the mechanics and technology may be new, science fiction rhymes with the present just enough to create a structure that is familiar. Around that structure, the author can tell stories and place personalities that any sailor will recognize as being familiar to their personal place and time. In these stories, we can explore the personal, moral, tactical, or strategic issues we otherwise can't. So much of what happens at sea or deployed is either classified, has ramifications in international relations, counters established policies, or wrapped up in politics, both real and interpersonal, that can put individual careers, reputations, or even lives at risk. All these barriers warp nonfiction storytelling to an extent that authors often pull their punches and their stories devolve one chop chain or staff socialization at a time into little more than an industry press release or PAO July 4th photo essay. Science fiction, for both the producer and the consumer, provides an outlet to think about, recognize, and share what otherwise is hidden in the conflicting priorities of our reality. For me, you can find this dynamic in one of the best science fiction series of the last decade, The Expanse. This series is more than just entertaining science fiction, at least for this sailor. What hooked me in the first season was I saw, as you often do in good science fiction, 
stories that rhyme with things I spent over a decade writing and talking about, and in that less artful way, into a much smaller audience on my blog and in my podcast. I found myself seeing a demonstration of what happens when you, for instance, have such an unbalanced fleet that you are forced to have one of your capital ships do simple law enforcement patrols, allow complacency and arrogance lead you to underestimate your enemy, get comfortable with peacetime optimal manning compromises to save a bit of change now, leading to tragic consequences at war later. And more personally, with everyone's favorite Martian, Alex Kamal, we find a retired middling naval officer trying to find place and meeting in a universe when neither work or family seems to fit quite the way he always thought they would. Fiction, while an escape, also gives the reader or viewer a chance to look inward, if not for answers, then at least for more questions to ask while trying to figure the real world out. Oh, and science fiction has, well, space, aliens, interesting things to contemplate doing in zero-g, and an ongoing thread of what-ifs, unbound from all the messy limitations we find while solving the inscrutable details of our own banal existence. Thanks, Commander Salamander. And Jennifer, are you, uh, are you back? Uh, do you have power again? No power, but I'm on my phone, so I can talk, and if I move this around, I might be able to still share my slides. Okay. Where did I drop out? Claude, where did yeah. I, when did I drop out? Uh, you dropped out after the, was it the third slide? Okay. So let's, how do I turn this around? And I can't do that. Lower. Okay. Give me something on well, your lower right screen. Perfect. Right screen. I was trying to flip around these. Okay. So hopefully this isn't too bad. Bizarrely, this is actually uh, represented in the Vorkosigan series um, by Miles in um, a way to break into a secure system. So it's entirely appropriate. I'm using this knowledge now. Um, so we have Bariar that has uh, taken over Komar. They find a planet on the way to Escobar and they, uh, that they later named Sergyar. And this prompts a expansionist, um, an expansionist force to try to take over Escobar too, because Setaganda has, has a very large empire. Why shouldn't Bariar? This was a very bad idea, in part because the people of Beta Colony come to the aid of Escobar and bring with it their wonderful technology. So the Escobarian invasion was a, a lot of after effects, including 
uh, the restriction of Bariyar and military forces largely to their space and their sphere. So Bariyar concentrates on largely domestic matters until, uh, except for the third set of Gandan War, which again is a space war that uh, doesn't touch down on any planet and is over very, very quickly. Now, keep in Iranian uh, naval forces at this time, Uganda has a much more typically some of their navy is all spread out, allowing the Baranians to concentrate their forces and push back the Setagandan advances. So outside of providing an escort function to some merchant and shipping convoys, the Baranian fleet post-Escobar is confined to their location and they have no way of counteracting the Camarian interest. So much like my presentation, they are adapting and overcoming by enlisting the Dendari Free Mercenary Fleet as a sometimes secret and large, largely not so, sometimes not so secret force that can travel places denied by the regular Navy and ensure that there is safe passage for trade ships and subjects uh, traveling in sectors very far from the Baranian Empire. One such case is in the war for Hagen's Hub. Here's Hagen's Hub. Uh, and you have Vervain, where the Setagandans wanted to invade and take over and basically push through that territory to the hub and provide uh, more access to the trade networks down here in Jackson's Hole and the whole bottom part of the map. So Bariar can't quite get there but the Dendari Free Mercenary Fleet can. So the Dendari jump through the Hagen's Hub wormhole into Vervani space, counter the Setagandan invasion long enough to allow a combined military forces of Bariar, Pol, and Ausland to, join for, to forge an alliance, join forces, and get permission to jump through. The aftermath of this was Bariar was able to gain additional uh, transit points and some political alliance, so expand into the territory on the right side of the map. The Setagandans look for territory on the left side of the map, and that comes to Little Marlac. Marlac gets invaded. And there's a strong resistance. The resistors are transported from that planet and imprisoned on Dragula 4 over here. Now, Dragula, Boryar can't get there. No way. Too much purple in between here and here. So what do they do? They send in the Dendari in secret to rescue um, a leader who was imp uh, imprisoned there but the leader died before they could break him out. So instead they break out the entire uh, camp. Halting uh, the, the uh, now freed uh, former POWs uh, go back to Marlac, regain their, their planet, throw off the Setagandans. Oh, almost the end. And 
suddenly that's back in um, their control. So using the Dendari Free Mercenary Fleet as a sometimes overt but mostly covert force multipliers, Bariar is able to oppose Setagandan expansion, ensuring the freedom to travel and trade throughout the Nexus. So this great power conflict between Bariar and Setaganda, in addition to providing a backdrop for the protagonist's adventures, illustrates the importance of geography and trade routes to understanding the actions of these two empires. So what are our takeaways from this fictitious history? Geography matters. History matters. And a well-led Navy is essential to defend your interests. Thank you so much for your patience. And back to you, Claude. Jennifer, you get the gold star for adapting and overcoming in a very, very quick uh, time. This concludes part one. Part two coming up next.